Today is a day we call Pentecost, and Pentecost basically represents the church's birthday. So the church that was birthed or born over 2,000 years ago is celebrating its birthday today all around the world. And so we've got a special treat for you in, in celebration of the church's birthday. I have a good friend of mine who is coming to, to speak to us today. His name is J.R. Briggs. J.R. I met about nine months ago and he's fast becoming a really good friend of mine. Um, he's a great communicator. Uh, he's the pastor of a church called Renew is in, in Lansdale, uh, Philadelphia, in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, which is, I found out, is just north of Philadelphia. And uh, I actually listen to his podcast quite a, a bit because he's just way more intelligent than me. He's, he can actually, like, pronounce biblical words and, like, I can't. I just try. I just say it's my British accent, but, you know, I get it wrong really all the time. Some of our leaders actually met him back in uh, January. And, like, all the guys, like, had this man crush on him because he's got this epic beard and he's just really intelligent. And so uh, he is part of... Uh, a network of churches called the Ecclesia Network. He's one of the leaders um, at the uh, Ecclesia Network, and they are a network of relational churches uh, that uh, that meet together uh, for missional purposes, and then also to help plant and birth new churches as well. So Jr. is going to come and uh, bring the word to us today. So let's give him a big old generation welcome today. Well, thanks, Alex, and uh, it is great to be with you all, and I've heard about you all, I've prayed for you all, I've heard Alex talk about you, but I've never actually been here, so it's really great for me to not just have an indirect relationship with you all, but a very direct one, so thanks for the warm welcome, I've had a good experience thus far. Uh, my, I have a wife and two adopted sons, uh, Carter, our oldest, is nine, and he's here w- across the street, and I always like to bring him along, and he's kind of at that age where he likes to see what God's doing in, in various contexts, which is really fun. Uh, but my wife and our, our youngest, who's six, uh, is, uh, my wife's not six, if you were wondering, that's my youngest <laughs> son, uh, is, uh, they're back in Philadelphia uh, this morning. But uh, Alex said, yes, uh, that uh, we planted the Renew community uh, eight years ago on the north side of Philadelphia, and it's been a wonderful journey. We didn't know what we were doing eight years in. We still don't know what we're doing. We're just trying to, like, fake it a little better than we were eight years ago. Uh, But uh, we're grateful for that. But I also, as Alex said, have a chance to serve with the Ecclesia Network, a network of churches on mission, uh, partnering together with other churches on mission. And you all are in the process of exploring that as a church, uh, which we love that. We would love for you all to lean in with us and, and be a part of the network as the Lord leads. Um, but it's a privilege. I, I have a fun job of being able to not only pastor a local congregation, but to be able to care for and connect with and equip and, uh, and see other churches uh, around the region, uh, around the country, and, and around the area. So uh, greetings from the north side of Philadelphia, and uh, grateful to be here. I shiver to think where I would be and our church would be if it weren't for the Ecclesia Network, um, supporting, praying for, encouraging, just allowing me to think, am I doing this right? I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Can someone help me? And uh, so it's an opportunity now that we have to help other churches do what we've received ourselves. As Alex said, uh, it is Pentecost Sunday, uh, the birthday of the church. Uh, Carter and I, on our journey down here this morning, 
saying happy birthday to the church out loud. We won't do that here this morning, but we do that at our church uh, on Pentecost Sunday. And uh, it's also the time where the Spirit uh, logs on to Facebook tomorrow and says, thanks for all the birthday wishes. And um, so we'll get a chance to do that maybe tomorrow. But uh, yeah, Um, you know, it's fitting... uh, Pentecost uh, is 50, means 50 or 50 days, and uh, 50 days after Easter. And so it's really cool because on Easter we say Jesus is risen, the pressure's off, the tomb is empty. But here on Pentecost we get a chance to say Christ is risen, but how do we as a community get a chance to live into that uh, reality as a community together? And that's what we're trying to do uh, with the Ecclesia Network as well. And so if you want to know more information, ecclesianet.org. Uh, if you want to log on to see uh, what we're what we're up to and what we're about, but Pentecost is a great time to do that. I want to. I, I know this. I look out and this looks like a very youngish uh, church, which is great. It's very similar to our church. And uh, even if your your birth certificate doesn't say you're young, I'm sure you're young at heart. And and so when I get a chance to speak to uh, congregations or or contexts that are younger, I, I always like to say that I really only need to speak about three things with a young audience in a church: sex the end times, and will there be sex in the end times? Um, I won't actually be teaching on any of those this morning, unfortunately, but one that I hope is incredibly significant for us. So I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and uh, we'll look at that in just a moment. Um, There's a lot of perplexing, interesting, exciting, fascinating, thrilling, even head-scratching things that happen in chapter 2 of Acts where we learn about uh, Pentecost, but let me give you a little bit of background information. And as soon as I share that background information, I want you to just file that way in your brain, and uh, then we're going to get a chance to read the the text and the passage. But in ancient times, uh, three times a year, God fearing Jews from all over the world would uh, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, God's holy city. Three times a year, you'd load up, you'd spend several days traveling together with your village or your community together to come to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was hopping three times a year. And those three um, celebrations, the first was called the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Sukkot. And uh, at Sukkot is where they would remember that while we were wandering in the wilderness, our ancestors were uh, in Egypt, that God still provided for us even though we didn't necessarily have a permanent residence. He, he took care of us. Uh, then there's Passover where we, you know, the ancestors, they'd remember their ancestors and how God rescued them out of Egypt from Pharaoh. And then the last one was Pentecost. They'd all descend upon Jerusalem during Pentecost, another a uh, term for Pentecost would be the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And uh, again, I mentioned it's 50 days after Easter, Pentecostus, Penta, where we get fit five or 50, so it'll be 50 days. And right now, millions of Christians around the world are celebrating Pentecost with us. So we can have a sense of family pride, you know, that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves today as we celebrate this. Um, but if you think about it, uh, the... The Pentecost, when it happened, all these countries coming together, uh, God-fearing Jews in Jerusalem, it was kind of like the United Nations, right? Everybody coming together in one location. It might also be like the World Cup or the Olympics, right? All the international flavor and, and, and uh, pomp and circumstance that comes together of celebrating these different countries around one particular vision. But if you think about the UN, right, how do we operate together in different countries and ethnicities and cultures together, uh, and what, what is it that we're after? It was an annual agricultural festival 
So people from various ethnicities and backgrounds would come to one particular area. Let me show you a map. This is from a study Bible. This just shows you where people were coming from, from all over the place. It's quite a journey to be able to be traveling from these places to descend upon one city in Jerusalem. God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven in one location. Because it was a largely agricultural um, society there in the first century, farmers would bring the first of their wheat crop uh, especially, and they would offer a sacrifice to God out of gratitude for providing a harvest for the past year. Say, thanks, God, and they would give what's called their first fruits. Not their leftovers, not the, the crops that, yeah, the, the expiration date's coming soon, but their best stuff, where they can get the most yield of money, they would say, God, you provided. Everything here is yours. We're going to give you the best right at the beginning. This is yours as a way of saying thanks, but also to pray and say, God, would you provide for us in the coming year? So we're going to trust you. We're going to give you our best and to say thanks, but to say in our trust of you, please take care of us because if we don't have crops, we don't live, we don't operate. And uh, so gratitude and trust together. But it was also a time to remember. It was a time to remember that in Exodus, how 50 days after the festival called Passover, that God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, instructions on how Israel was to live in relationship with God. And God gave those to Moses 50 days uh, after Passover. And it's remembering how God gave his people a way of life to go out and to carry God's purposes. Now, with that background in mind, I want to encourage you to look at Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read that uh, here this morning, starting in verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. There's about 120 of them. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Now, we'll stop there. We really could re be reading the rest of the chapter, uh, and I want to encourage you to do that at some point today or this week. Um, but we're just going to pause there for now. And so, again, on Pentecost, everyone got to get, gathered together in a room about the size of your church, and a hurricane-like wind blew and appeared. It was like, you know, hearing Hurricane Sandy uh, kind of blow through. I mean, just kind of, what is going on? This is freaky. This hasn't happened before. Everybody's looking at each other little bit of suspicion. And it said, And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest 
over each one of them. Now, God works all throughout the scriptures and even today through symbols and metaphors and pictures and signs and experiential elements. He doesn't want to remain theoretical. He wants to be tactile. He wants us to experience him firsthand. So we need to pay attention to symbols and metaphors and visuals that we see all throughout the scriptures. And one of them is this. It's the idea of wind. Now, I'm going to have you say, participate here with me. So I want you to say the word ruach. Ruach. Let me hear you say it. Ruach. You have to hawk a loogie there at the end, okay? And then wipe your mouth when you're done, right? So ruach. Ruach. One more time. Let me hear you say ruach. That's right. Now, that word ruach is the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for, for wind or breath. Now, the cool thing about ruach is if you say it on a cold day, you actually embody it. It's like onomatopoeia on steroids, right? You kind of embody it. So when you say wind or breath, ruach, you actually create wind or breath, right? And then you could see it on a cold day. It's kind of neat. Now, the Greek word in the New Testament, in the New Testament language, is the word pneuma. Let me hear you say pneuma. That's where we get our word pneumonia. So what is pneumonia? Pneumonia is where you can't breathe po- properly, right? It's a limitation of your breath in your lungs, right? So you need medical attention if there can't be enough wind or breath going through you. Why do I tell you all this? Because ruach and pneuma, wind and breath, have a third meaning. It's the meaning spirit. It means the same thing. Wind, breath, spirit all mean the same thing. And fire. It says that there were fire, you know, tongues of fire, they separate and come to rest over each one. Look, look, oh, I got one too, right? I mean, what is going on, right? In the whole room, it's, it's filled. Often a sign of God's presence throughout Scripture is fire. You think about it, there are different elements. The burning bush showed God's, God's presence. Abraham and the smoking clay pot in Genesis showed God's presence. Right? Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, fire came, c- comes down, phew, lights the sacrifice on fire. Right? When fire is present, it means God is present. We need to pay attention to that. When God gave the law, the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, the scriptures say that the whole mountain was covered with fire. So what's going on here? The, 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 the first, the early... Uh, Believers there would look around and go, okay, there's wind, pneuma, ruach, and there's fire. God is present. The Spirit is present. We must pay attention to what's going on here. Now, here's the important part about the idea of tongues of fire above everybody's head, is that it said it came to rest over each person's head. I think that has some implications for us. Because when we're given the Holy Spirit, it's not, well, you know what? We're going to give the more spiritual person who's graduated from seminary uh, a bigger flame. And you, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if you deserve a flame, maybe a little lighter flicker, you know? That's, uh, that's probably good enough. No, it says it rested over each one of them, that God's Spirit was among all of them. There was no bifurcation of like the good people and the more spiritual people and like, well, okay, we'll just kind of throw some fire in for you. Every single one. I think that has some implications for us, for those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus, that we've been given the Spirit inside of us. And that's a gift that can, and I hope we see it as a gift in that. Now, it's hard to know exactly what it was like in that room with this wind and these these, uh, tongues of fire above everybody's head. 
I love art. I'm not an artist, but I do love art. And I want to show you a few pictures of artists uh, and how they've depicted what happened in that room. So here's the first one here. You see an old icon. Christian iconography is just very interesting. So you see a little tiny, you know, it's a little organized, right? Little, Little flames over everybody's head, equal amount there. Okay. How about the next one? All right. This is by Gustave Doré. If you ever uh, get a chance to Google Gustave Doré, he did a lot of these etchings through tons of biblical stories. Fascinating. Uh, but you see, you know, a couple more flames there. That's an interesting thing with the dove coming down. Another, another. Uh, here's, here's, here's one that's a little more modern, a little chalk drawing. I really like this. I really like this one a lot. A little more chaotic, right, than the previous two. You know, kind of swirling around, wind and fire together. I really like this. But my son, my son really likes this next one. This is a Lego version here. So if you haven't heard of the Lego Bible, it's awesome. It's, it's, uh, it's a whole bunch of pictures of uh, Lego characters acting out Bible stories. So uh, this is one of them, uh, which I really like. But everyone, it says, started speaking in tongues. Now, we don't know what that experience was like specifically, but I find it important to see that everyone could comprehend what was being said in their native language. It wasn't just a bunch of babbling going, what are they saying? They're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Honey, did you hear that? That Galilean. I think he said exactly what I thought he said. Did you hear it? Yeah, I heard it. And the woman says, wait, 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 wait. Say that again. Hold on. I understand. Where did you learn? You didn't go to language school. How did you know that? It says uh, in the passage there, there are 16 different distinct regions, provinces, or countries that were represented in Jerusalem. Pretty cool. Now, the author of the book of Acts uh, is Luke. And Luke stresses that this wasn't to divide. This was the opposite. This was intended to unite God's people together, the various ethnicities and various countries and cultures and backgrounds. And this was an exciting and frightening experience. It says that there was bewilderment, amazement, wonder, surprise. It prompted the people in their amazement to pretty much say, what in the world does this mean? What the heck is going on? And it said, some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. In other words, they're drunk. They don't know what's going on. You know, kind of a, a weird thing to be accused of real early in the morning. I'm not sure there was a lot of order there. If you're accusing someone of being drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, there's some chaos there. There's some like, what is going on here? Right? That would, you know, it might, you know, that Facebook status update. What? Is, tell me. Now, I don't know if there are any baseball fans here. Anybody, any, any baseball fans? Okay. Yeah, a couple. All right. The rest of you, maybe one day you'll come around to see the light of Jesus. But um, I'm, I'm a huge baseball fan, and uh, I just found out recently, I know many of you know this already, but uh, that Babe Ruth uh, actually used to play for the Orioles, I think when they were the, the minor league team, um, but that Babe Ruth uh, played for the Red Sox. His nickname was the Bambino. Um, he grew up in Baltimore, of course, but he actually played uh, for the, the Red Sox. He was a rising star, and the Red Sox, out of the first 16 years of the World Series, won five. So it was on, kind of approaching a dynasty there. And after they won in 1919, he was traded away. His contract was sold to the Yankees. Oh, the Yankees, right? So he he joins the Yankees, and and after he moves to the Yankees, the Sox enter an 80-plus year drought of no world championships, and yet the Yankees clean house 
oh, the Yankees. For world championship after world championship after world championship. And this, of course, has been called throughout the decades by baseball fans as the curse of the Bambino, right? The curse. But in 2003, Boston started noticing that the Red Sox were starting to put all the pieces together. And they're going, it's been a long time, but there's some hope now. We're getting some wins. It's looking good here. And they started believing in themselves and thinking, could this kind of be the era where we might break the curse here? Things were coming together, and they realized that. And a sign hung above the road on the Longfellow Bridge in Boston for about 50 years. It said, reverse curve, reverse curve, you know, slow down. And someone climbed up on the Longfellow Bridge and took some spray paint and decided to write, reverse the curse. And it became the rallying cry for the city of Boston during that period of time. They said, maybe this is our time. And the unimaginable, the unthinkable happened. The miraculous happened that in 2004, the Red Sox finally won the World Series. And they also did in 2007. And again, in 2014, starting to get spoiled. So Red Sox, no more, you're done. Go into hibernation for another 80 years. That would be great. But the curse has been reversed. Now I think it's time for the Cubs, right? The Cubs have suffered long enough. If you're around Chicago, uh, you'll hear the Cubs fans say, no, we, we have a curse now. We've been under that even longer than the Red Sox. But there's something significant baked into the text here, into the teaching that we need to see, that there's another desire to reverse the curse. On the drive down here, my son Carter said, Dad, what are you preaching on this morning? And we talked about Pentecost and Acts chapter 2. And, uh, and I told him the story about Babe Ruth and the curse of the Bambino. And, um, and I said, uh, you know, when they started talking in different languages, speaking in tongues, I said, Carter, can you think of another time in Scripture where God changed the communication of people? And he said, oh, the Tower of Babel. I said, that's exactly right. And why did he do it? And he said, well, if I remember right, he said that they were trying to build a tower to God and they felt like they are tower to the heavens and they didn't need God. So that's exactly right. And he's from Genesis chapter 11. So we don't need God. We're innovative. We're good. We're educated. We can figure out life on our own without God. So you see this artist rendering here of what they think the Tower of Babel would look like. And so what does God do? He curses them in their lack of need for God. And so he says, fine. So he comes down and he confuses their language so they don't understand each other. He confuses their language and they scatter all over the world and the the building of the city of the tower is stopped because they can't get anything done. And of course, the word Babel, Tower of Babel, sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. It's also where we get our English word babble. You know, he's babbling or that guy's such a babbler, meaning he's talking and I have no idea what he's saying. I can't even understand what's going on. So God gives the people a curse for wanting their own glory and not wanting God's presence in their lives. So notice the reverse, the curse that happens here in Acts chapter 2. What's going on? The curse of saying, you didn't want me, and therefore I'm going to confuse your language. In Acts chapter 2, God does the opposite. He reverses the curse and says, you all are in various languages and don't know about the good news of Jesus and what can be done. And so the curse is 
reversed. A time when thousands of people from every nation come to celebrate in one location. God's Spirit does something amazing. And they can now all understand the good news of Jesus in their own language. Remember, the Spirit seeks to unite, not to divide. So unity is what he's at. Not uniformity, but unity in the midst of diversity. They weren't all speaking the same language. But in the diversity of the languages, they all were hearing about the good news of Jesus. They didn't have to wear those headsets like they wear in the UN. They could just hear it. They, they could take the headsets off and go, wait, you're speaking my language. This is amazing. The gods reverse the curse. is not this uniformity of language, but it's a unity in the midst of diversity. Don't miss in this story just how strategic God is regarding his grand mission for the world. God is loving and he's patient and he's compassionate, but man, he's brilliant. Think of the strategy of his mission advancing to the world. It's no coincidence that this happens here. God is undeniably reversing the judgment and the powerful miracle that overcomes communication barriers. You know what this is? It's a reverse mission trip. It's a reverse mission trip. Instead of everybody leaving the city and going to every nation of the world, every nation of the world comes to one city. And when that happens, a dramatic thing happens. The hope of salvation is proclaimed. The Holy Spirit comes down in that room and they return home to their own culture and they tell everyone what happened. You won't believe what occurred when we went to Jerusalem for Pentecost. I mean, think about it. We've got the Olympics coming up in Rio. In many ways, you know, every nation in the world represented coming to one place. Imagine if God did something dramatic in Rio. In that particular time, so much so that everybody goes home and they go, you will not believe what happened in the Olympic Village. Unbelievable what broke, broke out during the opening ceremonies in the stadium. This is what we're looking at. This is what happened in Acts chapter 2, this reverse mission trip. So what's going on here? Reverse of, of Genesis chapter 11, we see that happening. And while people were bringing their first fruits to God and saying, God, we trust you, we want to give you our best. You know what God does? God says, thank you. I'm going to give you a birthday present too. And I'm going to use Pentecost to give you the first fruits of my spirit. I have a gift for you. And he's breaking into this life of people in new, fresh, and dramatic ways. He's not giving the law, the Ten Commandments, as a way to live and be led. He now says, I'm going to give you my spirit as a way to live and be led. And people are saying, what the heck is going on here? What's going on? And Peter, Peter stands up in the chaos and the confusion, and he proclaims the good news to amazed, perplexed, and completely wrapped people. They're sitting there going, somebody tell me what's going on. If you go on to read the passage from verse 14 to the, to the end of chapter 2, one of the things you'll find interesting and somewhat encouraging for me as a, as a pastor and as a, as a teacher, it was a pretty lousy sermon. He gave a pretty lousy sermon. You look at it, you're like, Peter, no, that's, you don't say that. I don't. Oh, buddy. What's interesting, though, 
is that in the midst of a lousy sermon, God uses it to do an amazing thing. To me, that shows me how patient and amazing and powerful and creative and loving he is to use a crooked stick to write something straight. For any of us that say, well, I can't do that. I, I, I'm not gifted in that. You don't know my path. Here's the thing that I think is really important for us to see. Peter, just a few weeks prior, commits the biggest failure of his entire life. He denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And he wept because he knew, I'm the biggest screw-up. And Jesus restores him, and a few weeks later, God uses him to see God's mission break out into the world because of a lousy sermon that he has no time to prepare for. He didn't go back in his study and go, give me a couple hours. I need to put an outline together or read my commentaries. People are like, what is going on? He just stands up and starts talking. That encourages me. I hope it encourages you. I'm not educated. I can't do this. I'm a screw up. Do you know my pet? Peter could have said all that. But he stands up and God uses him in a dramatic way. He had a fire above his head. And God said, I the spirit of God's inside of you. I'll use you. I'll use you. And he did in a dramatic way. Now, there's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit. And I'll say in my own life, there's been a lot of growth. I would say in the last five, six, seven years, there's been no area of my own journey with Jesus than actually coming to trust the Holy Spirit. I grew up in a tradition, said don't trust the Holy Spirit. Uh, The tradition was we believe in the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Book. And uh, I wanted to enter in to say, can I trust the Holy Spirit? But I'd seen late night religious television that kind of scarred me and I had a little bit of a tick when it would like come on. I mean, just there's a lot of baggage and weirdness and stuff out there. And I thought, well, I don't ever want to be a part of that. But the Lord was wooing me back to say, I want you to trust the Spirit. The Spirit's here to be trusted. And maybe that's you or maybe you say, I don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. Or I've seen some weird abuse go on with the Spirit and, and I just don't know if I can do that. I want to share just a few things that I've learned um, that may be of help to you and maybe uh, helping to um, trust the Spirit more. Um, but, you know, the Scriptures tell us that the Spirit is a friend, the Spirit is a counselor, the Spirit is a guide, a teacher, a reminderer. But the Spirit has power, immense power. We don't have to be afraid of the Spirit. We can trust the Spirit. In fact, we're told to walk in step with the Spirit to be filled with the Spirit, to submit or yield our lives to the Spirit. If you think about, uh, I I know some some babies and some small children in the room, and some of you probably have children that are just about to walk or crawling and learning to walk. If you think about it, you know, when, when when your child is learning to walk and they're taking their first step or two, and then they fall down after a step or two, you're like, come on, man. I thought you were gonna run. Like, why can't you figure this out? You know, just put feet in front of each other and figure it out, right? It isn't how it worked. That's not how it works, is it? Right? They take a step or two. Oh, you did it! Yes! And they fall down. Oh, 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 you can do it. Try it again. Oh, oh, okay, try it again, right? I mean, we're so excited as parents when we see that happen, right? A couple steps. Maybe they're holding our pinky for a little bit, and then you let go, and right? We do the, that. We don't do that in that approach with people with the Spirit, do we? Right? 
They say, well, that, they, they made a mistake. They screwed it up. They didn't follow the Spirit, right? Don't ever do that again. It's like we don't say to our kids, don't ever try to walk again. You screwed it up. You tried. And don't ever do that again because uh, you should be afraid of walking because you didn't get it right last time. God's so, so patient with us. We're not going to always get it right in following the Spirit and walking with the Spirit. It's okay. Take a few steps. It's all right. Come on, you can do it. A few more. All right, you can do it. Here, hold my pinky for a little bit. Okay. Now, God is that God who wants to work with us. But don't ever hear him say, well, hey, come on, man. You took two steps and fell. I thought you'd figure this out by now. He's patient with us and trusting him to walk with the Spirit. I didn't say this in the first service, but... You know, when we don't submit and we don't choose to walk in step with the Spirit, we do what's called grieving the Spirit. What does that mean? I always thought grieving the Spirit meant, you know, I don't grieve the Spirit. I don't flip the bird to the Spirit. I don't yell at the Spirit. I don't say, get out of my life, right? What does it mean to grieve the Spirit? Dallas Willard helped me understand this. He said, the Spirit is a relational God. So what happens if you're in Starbucks and there's somebody that you know who walks in the door? But you see them, and they know you've seen them, but you politely ignore them. Do you not grieve your friend? Under that definition, there have been times I have grieved the Spirit. Where I politely choose to ignore that the Spirit's present and in the room. So instead of ignore the Spirit, to walk in step, to live with the Spirit, to submit to the Spirit, we say, come on, come sit down with me for for a while. So when the Spirit is present and working, here are the evidences, here's the fruit, Uh, here's here's how we know. Next slide. Here's some ways that we can know uh, God's Spirit is present. That when God's Spirit is present, there's truth there. It points to God's heart and the character of Jesus. Oftentimes it's conviction of sin or bringing something to light or illuminating something that we're aware of, uh, we're unaware of on our own power. Emotion is often present. It could be tears. It could be joy, celebration. Um, it says when they heard Peter preach, they were cut to the heart. Right? There was emotion there. Very rarely when the Spirit shows up do we shrug our shoulders and go, oh, that was cool. There, there's, a, there's a response there of emotion, but then a response of reaction or response of us when it comes to action. So what do we do now? What, how are we supposed to respond? We see that a lot in the book of Acts. Oftentimes it's confession or repentance or celebration and joy or obedience. But I got to do something. I can't just be here the same based on what's just happened. We also see that Jesus is honored. And this, for me, was huge in my growth to trust the Spirit. I always thought the Holy Spirit's going to make me do something crazy, like get up and run around the auditorium naked during worship or (laughs) do something ridiculous. And I realized, wait a second, the Spirit will never do anything that contradicts Jesus. In fact, if anything, He's helping me understand Jesus more. That the Spirit is always Jesus-centric always Jesus-centric. And then last, that it brings surprise. There's this surprising, fresh, unpredictable element to the Spirit. There's a disruption of the status quo. It's never status quo with the Spirit. In fact, you see all five of these things present 
in Acts chapter 2, don't you? In fact, many times throughout Acts, you'll notice it. You'll see these, these things show up. And as the great uh, Christian theologian Bono uh, has said, uh, that religion is what happens when the Holy Spirit leaves the building. You know, there are lots of people, and maybe you included, to say, the reason I hate church is because of spiritless religion. There's an unbelieving uh, and hurting world that says, I don't want anything to be a part of something like that. And you know what? I don't want to be a part of it either. And I hope you don't either. And so religion is what sets in when we just are trying to maintain the religious status quo. And instead, we want to say, Jesus, do something. Spirit, break in. We're listening. What do you want from us? We want to enter into this adventure with you. So notice what God is doing. He's, he gives the Spirit as a gift to his people. Jesus has come. In Acts chapter 1, he ascends into heaven. And the disciples are told to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. Well, when are you going to just wait? Well, how are we going to just wait? Well, is it, should we just wait? Just wait in Jerusalem and I'll show up. The Spirit will come. Okay. I mean, how long are we waiting? It's just wait. And what happens? The Spirit does come in Acts 2. This God who's faithful, He keeps His promises and says, I told you I'd come. I told you I'd bring my Spirit. Boom. Not only was it dramatic and amazing and chaotic, it was also them going, wait. Jesus told us this would happen. Jesus followed through on his promise again. God is launching his plan of rescue among his people in a strategic way by having every nation come to one city and in his patience and his compassion and his love and his strategy, he reverses the curse and gives them not the law, but a new way to live in the spirit. Isn't God good like that? I just look at this and I go, this is unbelievable. This is so great. This is so great how God works. And baseball is a great sport and all that's great. But I'm so grateful for how much more significant this reversing the curse actually is. God, through the person of Jesus Christ, empowers the Holy Spirit. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, and I don't know you all, there may be people here that I say, I'm just checking out Jesus. I'm just kicking the tires. Man, that's awesome that you're here. It sounds like a very safe and encouraging place for you to ask all sorts of dangerous questions about God, which is fantastic. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we've been given this spirit inside of us. It may not be a flame above our heads, but it's actually given to us inside of us to empower us and guide and equip and train and, and uh, use us and remind us. And he's reversed the curse in our own lives. But he also says, I want to see the curse reversed with other people who don't know me yet. And I want to use you to go out and do that. And so God in his grace uses you and me as crooked sticks like he did with Peter. And he says, I have a straight line message, but I'll use a crooked pen like you all. That's an unbelieving God that when his spirit is present, says, what do we do? And when God's people in local churches all over the region and the country and the world say, God, we're here. What do you want us to do? It's one of the best birthday gifts we can give him on Pentecost. So if the Holy Spirit can be this wonderful and surprising and hope-filled 
then the Spirit can be someone that we can actually trust with our lives and here in this church. So today we celebrate that birth of the church. And my challenge to you all as a church is that you lean into and you pray and you give into and you cheer into what God is doing in other people's lives. And when other people are beginning to trust the Spirit more and maybe take a couple steps, you go, you can do it. Come on, you a couple more. Keep going. And when they fall, you go, up. Oh, you can do it. Try it again. Up. Oh, you can do it. Try it again. That's what the role of the church is. And we get a chance to do that together and encourage and cheer and prod each other on in that direction. So I would just say, if you've never given Christ access This is a perfect day on Pentecost to be able to crack it open and say, all right, I got a whole bunch of questions, but I'm willing to open my life up and myself up to trust the Spirit, even though there might be some weird stuff, and I don't know, I've got questions, but to be able to crack yourself open a little bit to give Him a little bit more access. Maybe you've never given Him before. Some of you have given God lots of access, and you trust the Spirit, and I would just want to challenge you to say, are there areas of your life where You've said, God, you can have all this. You can have 95% of this, but this 5% here, that's mine. That's mine. You can have the whole house, but this locked room here is mine. And what would it look like if you gave the Spirit that access? Bill Heibel said that 95% commitment to God is still 5% too sure. So what would it look like for you to give God just even a little bit more access to open yourself up to Him more than you have in the past so I, I end with this, and again, it's been wonderful to be with you all, and I'm so grateful for what God's doing here in this church, and I want to see it continue. So I hope you hear me not as an expert, but as a fellow journeyer, a few steps along, saying, keep going, Generation Church, keep doing it, keep following Jesus, keep giving Him access. And so I challenge you with this. Generation Church, may you recognize that God has reversed the curse. May you recognize that he wants that curse that's among other people that don't know him yet to be reversed even still today by using you to say, God, I'll do whatever. Use me. Use this church. So may you do that. May you see, uh, may we see even more churches birthed to reach all sorts of people who don't yet know that the curse has been reversed. And may generation be a part of that. And may you come to know not just about the Holy Spirit, but may you come to encounter the Holy Spirit, to live into, to practices, to submit, to yield, so that you may never grieve the Spirit, a relational Spirit who wants to be acknowledged and welcomed into your particular context, wherever it may be. Because you are missionaries cleverly disguised as attorneys and teachers and plumbers and stay-at-home moms and dads. And in your particular context, that flame is inside of you. And he says, I want to use you, regardless of where you're at. And if God can use Peter, his biggest screw-up of his entire life a few weeks later ends up being the way that the Spirit unleashes the birth of the church. He can use anybody. He can use anybody. So may you do all that with joy, too. Not out of obligation but out of joy that he actually wants to use you. Knowing when I crack myself open, that's the real adventure. When I unlock that door that's been locked and I give him access, that's the adventure. Because there's never a moment in your life where you have grown where you've not first been vulnerable. You will only grow when you're vulnerable. 
There's not a single time in your life where you've grown where you haven't been vulnerable. And the Lord is saying, hey, give me access. Open yourself up. Be more vulnerable with me. That's where the real adventure is. Let me pray for you all.